Good morning and good afternoon and welcome to the Finos podcast where I'm joined by Conor O'Neill and Jer O'Shaughnessy um, of Nearform. Hi guys, how are you? Good, thanks. Great, thanks James. So thank you both for joining me today. Um, but before we begin, can you give me a quick introduction, including your roles within the Nearform team? Oh, I'll go first then. Uh, <laughs> so yes, I'm I'm head of product in Nearform. Um, so I'm responsible for any sort of pro- not not just product activities, but productization activities. And currently, I'm very involved in our activities around contact tracing and COVID nineteen exposure notification applications. Somebody, uh, so Jerry here, somebody wise once said to me, "You shouldn't have a job title; you should have a purpose." Um, she was very wise. She saw too many people just sitting in their job title and not doing an awful lot. So, I like um, a, a propositions for me. It, my purpose is to make sure that all the great things that their form do technically uh, fit into the market. So, what is what's the value we're bringing for different segments? What proposition value proposition? Uh, is, is benefiting them and how do we package that up? So uh, that's, that's my focus. Can you briefly tell me about Nearform's relationship with open source and how Nearform software development experience shaped and built the COVID Green application? Sure. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about Nearform is it's been doing open source since day one. So um, the, the founders, Keen and, and Richard, kind of landed on, on Node.js as a technology very, very early on. So, you know, 2011, when basically nobody was using it, but they they had very quick success um, with a couple of projects for customers and really realized they 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 they'd hit on something very important but they also realized that they they couldn't just kind of consume this open source so they started working a lot with open source communities hiring open source developers to do like full-time open source development um funding individual projects sub projects um you know at one point kian had a very famous open source developer sleeping on his couch it was at that level of of involvement um and that built over the years and you know at one point in one of the node releases we did about uh, 60% of the, the new code in, in that particular release so um been deeply involved all the way along and that has fed into the projects we do so you know when one of our um, open source developers would let's say build a new web framework as as Mateo did um with several others with fastify then the projects would then start using Fastify because it was fundamentally better than than everything else that was out there for for the purposes of of what they were doing. And this just kind of built and built and built until finally we get to 2020 um, when, uh, you know, we've been doing, as I said, the open source, we've been doing these accelerators, which have a huge amount of open source in them as well. And then we get asked to to build, you know, a a COVID-19 exposure notification app and we just have all the pieces ready because we've been we've been doing this for ten years, and you know the jokey phrase I use is about you know overnight success. It just took ten years of hard work to get that that overnight success, but it was building and building components, frameworks, you know, entire stacks, so that when an opportunity like this arises, um, you can just execute at just crazy speed because you've all of those. Um, pieces in place to do so. And would you say that having those pieces in place um, allowed you to build um, and also react to COVID-19 in the way that you did? 
Oh, I think so. I mean, there, there's no way, um, you know, even four years ago, we would have been able to deliver or an, we think anybody would have been able to deliver an app of that level within four weeks. I mean, it's it's an insane time scale, particularly. And and the one thing that people sometimes forget about is the operational side of these things. So, you know, when the particularly the Irish app launched, um, you know, you often have that situation when you have a launch and everybody, you know, we need we need a thousand servers because we're going to be so successful. And then, you know, it's crickets. Nobody installs your app. Whereas we had the opposite, which was, well, you know, if we get to 100,000, it'll be fantastic. And suddenly it's 300,000 people within within like 48 hours and watching on the operational side in our DevOps guys. And it was just pure calm. And um, there was, there was, it was like, is nobody panicking? They didn't need to because again, they just spent so long building all of this, this, uh, these the fundamentals that an individual kind of execution or an individual project was no big deal, which sounds strange, but it, it actually wasn't for them. I was really excited when I first, first learned that Nearform was stepping into the Republic of Ireland's fight against COVID. Can you tell me how Nearform picked up the challenge and initially got involved? Uh, sure. Yeah, good question, uh, James. I think you can work many, many years in IT without doing anything exciting, is my experience. So I guess that is the plus side here. Um, and, and like overall, it's it's been great way beyond if you like the the IT and the commercial and the involvement. It's been it's been great to be able to be doing something. As most people in the population have suffered from COVID, we've been able to help, and that's been a big plus for us. Uh, interestingly, I think there's there's two points in this. It literally came down to a phone call from our health service executive uh, on a bank holiday Saturday to our guys to say, look, we we know you by reputation. We know this needs to be highly secure, highly performant, and very quick, as Connor has just mentioned. Um, can you help us out? Uh, and because we don't just do projects, I'm going to put it like that, we, we build platforms to deliver services. And I think relating to Connor's point, we had all the bits and pieces in place. And I've, I've shown them in the previous webinar there, what we call accelerated development. We had all the tools, processes, and even archetypes of basic apps. So we could start from square five, if you like. Uh, and that meant that our guys could literally get a working prototype of the app back to our service executive in four days. And I think that is what propelled it into a major project was they were just blown away at that level of response. So I understand open source and innovation is a big part of Nearform's engineering culture. Was COVID Green always intended to be developed as an open source project? Okay, actually, it's also a really good question. Um, and I think it's something that evolved uh, uh, in that we originally would not have thought that far ahead. We're, we were using open source tools, obviously, to build the project. I think the key word here is trust. So as we began to build the app, and I'm sure people have seen this in the, it, it was amazingly high profile for something that wasn't even launched yet. And it was attracting a lot of uh, uninformed and even negative press about privacy and problems with tracking, none of which were actually uh, problems in the end. But I think it had to be open source. So uh, in different levels, uh, the, we built the app for the health service, service executive. 
who had already worked out on their own that the only way for people to trust this was for it to be open source in its most literal sense, and that the technical community in Ireland and abroad could look at the source code and could verify for themselves not only that it was high quality, but that it was safe, it didn't impinge on anybody's privacy, and it wasn't, there weren't any hidden traps or, or, or pitfalls in there. Uh, and so that from the original app became, if you like, part of the manifesto, this is safe, this is open, this is more important than anything else you might be doing. It's, it's literally saving lives. And, and that kind of evolved into open sourcing the original Irish app and then taking an open source approach to the global problem that we were being asked to solve because each government was passing us on to the next government saying, these guys are good, we need to do this quickly, we need to do this safely and openly, and let's make this uh, a COVID agreement with the pension. So over the last few months, I think the entire population of the world has become um, an expert on COVID-19. And when it comes to apps, we've heard about decentralized versus um, centralized. Can you explain the advantages of developing a decentralized COVID-19 system using the Apple and Google APIs versus the bespoke centralized applications um, that have been met with less success? Yeah, it's it's that that's been a particularly interesting one for us because we've seen both. We've actually built both. Um, so the the very first iteration of the Irish app was what we call centralized, and really all, what that means is that. Um, and to very very quickly explain what's happening with these apps. They're you're using Bluetooth low energy to to broadcast anonymous random keys that are rapidly changing. Um, your phone's doing it. Anybody else who has an app and the ser the service uh, is doing the same. And you're logging the keys that you see. They're logging the keys that they see. In a in a centralized system, everybody's uploading those keys to a central government server, um, and they're checking for matches. They're saying, ah, this the you know these two phones saw each other. They saw each other for in in an Irish case, the rule is. Uh, 15 minutes uh, for, uh, you know, within about two meters and spend hours discussing the two meter thing. Um, but we'll say about two meters. Um, and then they would send an alert um, to those two phones, you know, saying, oh, there's a, there, there's an, there's potentially an issue here if one of them proved to have been uh, infected. The problem with all of that is it, it relies on um, but there's multiple problems uh, from a privacy perspective and a security perspective. It relies on the government backend system being 100% secure and having no issues ever. Because if if it's ever breached, that means you're now actually effectively going to be able to track people, find people, do you know all sorts of nefarious things. Um, but the other more fundamental issue is is a technological one, which is those apps don't work properly on iOS um, because uh, in iOS and it's you know with, with most applications when you turn off your screen after about ten minutes, iOS puts that the apps whatever app was running to sleep. Safe battery. It's a you know perfectly reasonable thing to do, um, and when those apps are in kind of sleep mode, they can't broadcast and receive Bluetooth at the same time. So they, you know the the whole basis for the apps can't work um, in an iOS context. It mostly works on Android. Some of the more modern Android phones have similar sort of battery saving um, features, but you know 
at the end of the day, it meant that, for example, the British app, um, the first attempt at British app, they could get sort of 80% of Android phones in test and like 10% of, of iPhones being detected uh, because people happen to have the screen on uh, at a particular time. In, in the decentralized model, all of the matching and everything happens on people's phones. So basically you're broadcasting keys, you're receiving keys, um, and all of that stays on your phone. It's only when, let's say, you get find out you're, you you have an infection um, the government contact tracing center will say, are you using the app? Yes, I am. Would you be okay if um, we sent you a code that will enable you to anonymously upload the keys you were broadcasting for the past 14 days? Uh, you say yes, they send you a code by SMS. Your phone uploads the keys to the backend server. So that is happening, but entirely anonymously. Um, and then twice a day or four times a day, depending on your phone, everybody's phones pulls down those anonymous keys and has a look and goes, damn it, uh, I saw that key uh, for 15 minutes uh, and I was less than two meters away from that person. Um, and the app goes, mm, sorry, uh, looks like you may be infected. No, sorry, looks like you may have been exposed, not that you may have been infected. And um, here's what you need to do. You need to self-isolate. And again, this is country specific, but in, in many countries, you need to self-isolate for the next 14 days. You need to, you know, let a, a, a medical professional know that you need to get a test um, and so on. And they'll have steps there inside the app. None of this is going to any government system. This is all happening on your phone. So it's all private and you can choose. You can, if you wish, because it's, it's your, you know, your life. Um, you can choose to go, don't care. Um, so that's the, the, the fundamental difference is putting the power and the control in the user's hands, putting the privacy in the user's hands. Um, and it's only when they choose to share information. So for example, in the Irish app, you can put in your phone number but that phone number stay and it stays inside the app until you say, yeah, I'd actually really like if somebody contacted me um, because I am bothered by this. Your number goes up, they give you a call and then they can, you know, talk you through what, what needs to happen. So, so I mean, I've, I've kind of given the uh, extended answer there, but that, that's the fundamental difference between decentralized and centralized. By and large, almost all of the centralized apps are now gone because they don't work. France is one of the few holdouts, and I believe they, they, they've started on, on decentralized too. Um, but a critical point for anybody looking at this, and I know any geek, anybody who's ever played with Bluetooth, go, you know what you could do? Yeah, I, I've been there. I've, I've been, I'm looking at all the, the, the hardware on my desk uh, right now. That system, that decentralized system is only available to public health authority applications. So if you're Joe Blogs and you say, I could build one of those apps for my company uh, and then my, everybody in my company could be protected. No, you can't. Um, that service inside Android and that service inside iOS can only be turned on by effectively a government app. So that's uh, national governments in, in, in the case of Ireland and so on. And in the US, it, it's individual states can, can each have their own, their own. You know, I live in the States and I'm sorry, just to interject for a second, I live in the States and, and um, obviously, oh, we have a lot of division here, especially right now. And knowing that the, um, the privacy part of it is Making it decentralized, not having it be something that is, you know, Big Brother watching over you. Um, 
uh, would is an incredible play. I'm sure you already know that, but um, it just kind of blows me away. That's an amazing thing, especially, you know, as I try not to watch the news, but as I do, it's, you know, seeing things like that. That is something that I would have on my phone. No, we're hoping. Cool. Yeah, we we are hoping for for everyone's sake that the the uptake in in, in U.S. states uh, when people know about this and when they know it's these apps are nearly all going to be open source and they can you know look at the code they they can understand how the systems work that that being informed piece will really as uh, mentioned earlier on the trust piece will will drive up adoption you know they they did uh, effectively a centralized app in utah and it wasn't a success you know because they were doing i think they were doing gps tracking they were definitely doing gps tracking in norway and basically that app has been cancelled no no one would touch it and i know that's good grizz so um it sounds like with the decentralized app um the centralized server never knows that two people were together because they're basically just broadcasting the keys that you give to them to everybody and then uh people you know out in the decentralized world match your keys with theirs to see whether you know you ever came across each other over that bluetooth kind of handshake um so yeah, so and, and, and it's an, it's an important. And sorry, I'm, I I I tend to prattle on about this subject, but I I, I find it deeply interesting. Um, what you, you hear a lot of kind of commentary and and people talking about Bluetooth accuracy and distance, and you can't tell distance, you know. And and one of the things that I really try and get across is this is not designed to be perfect. It can't be perfect. Um, and I always end up quoting uh, Dr. Mike Ryan from the WHO, who, whose uh, his line is, and you know, it's, it's it's an old line, but he's applied it in in this situation that perfection is the enemy of the good when you're talking about an epidemic like this. You know, execute. It's all about execution. So if the app is wrong sometimes, if it misses the odd thing sometimes, or it gives a false positive, there that's not good. But it's it's so much better than doing nothing. You know, so much better than spending six months optimizing the living daylights out of something. Meanwhile, people are getting infected and people are dying. If this, for the sake of a small amount of money, really, if this saves even one life, I think it's it's worth it's worth the investment. So with the entire COVID green system being available to use or engage with through GitHub, um, how easy is it for countries and states who would like to leverage the open source project? And also for the general public who would like to install the app on smart devices, how easy is COVID Green to engage with from that perspective? It's 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 a good question, and there's there's a fair few kind of moving parts to it. So um, any state could, if they wished, go onto GitHub, you know, do a Git clone, um, have some developers work on it, and build an application for their state. And we are aware of people doing that um, or, or, or you know, attempting to do it. And there's, there doesn't need to be any Neuroform involvement in that. If this is open source. This is not a Neuroform thing. This is absolutely open source. And critically, um, the, the open source project is getting all of the improvements and updates. And, you know, as, as the thing evolves, it, it itself is improving, which means that anybody who's using the code base is actually going to be able to derive, you know, the, the benefit from, from those improvements. Um, but it's not trivial. You know, this isn't something 
um, our, our, our random person can decide I'm going to take this and, and, and build it. So if you just even on the mobile side, you're going to have to be a React Native developer. Like there's just no two ways about it. Um, if you want to um, make any changes to, to, to the application and you're going to have to have the entire dev you know, tool chain for React Native, for Expo, and all of that. Um, but that's only the app side. You also have the back end. Um, so therefore, you're going to have to be pretty good with AWS and Aurora and Fargate and ECS and Terraform. And, you know, I, I could go on and on. But there are absolutely teams out there um, who have all of those skills if they if they want to, to actually go do it. Um, from a state perspective, what we're seeing is, you know, they, they want to engage with a near form or a near form like company because um, they get the open source, the, they, they, they actually, you know, insist that it's open source, but they also want commercial support. They want somebody they can ring when things go wrong. Uh, and, and particularly when you're looking at, for example, an AWS backend, that's not something a state employee would generally be in a position to kind of manage, maintain and support. So, you know, there, there is that aspect, but I think what's really exciting for us to see, particularly from a US perspective is because, um, you know, uh, the, in, they're, they're basically, in many cases, mandating the use of um, COVID green. That you, it's you're seeing kind of true open source in action um, with multiple vendors, multiple stakeholders, everything happening in the open. Um, you know, pull requests happening left, right, and center, and, and all of that. It's it's um, it, it's it's a it's a lesson. I think I think it, it's a it's a really strong lesson. For a lot of states who may honestly have never dealt with open source before or may have been opposed to it, see, seeing them embracing and, and running with it and, and possibly, and I, I could be maybe overstating it, but we're not in normal times, but potentially maybe you know, non-COVID projects, suddenly it's, well, you know, the RFP comes out and it's a, this must be open source. So I'd be very interested to see how that progresses over, over the next six months of state, state projects. Can you explain the advantages of open sourcing COVID green through Linux Foundation Public Health versus supplying the system as proprietary software? Sure. Uh, it, it's interesting, even listening to um, Connor and Bruce there, this is as much a cultural question as it is a technology question. I, I feel like we have moved from a hierarchical way of thinking and doing things in, in business and in technology to uh, collaboration. You know, the power of individuals is part of groups, but the groups make better decisions. Um, and uh, I, I think that's what open source is bringing. I mean, to echo maybe less elegantly than Connor put it, but it's uh, open source is the manifestation of that is that uh, a group of developers from various backgrounds will end up with a better product and that's uh, with it you actually have the power of groupthink but with the safety of a moderator so you can get the best of what people have to offer bring it into open source and, and i think that's the that's one half of the equation uh, in terms of going away from proprietary is that you have something that is being has been contributed to by lots of people in, in this very world. Um, and the second half is again cultural. We have, it's funny, we have um, uh, somebody from Washington who works in Ireland for an air form, um, and we have, we have staff all over the world in various places. But her perspective was very interesting is that she thought there would be a great take up of the app in Ireland because 
it's a relatively small island and people tend to trust the government um, because it's, and not just because it was open source but because there's that cultural aspect of it um, whereas in the US and, and I think people have mentioned this just here briefly there's been a lot of division recently and there's there's an inherent state level of thinking that says we trust our own guys here but we're not 100 percent sure about the centralized way of doing things so in order for that to work in the us you're actually making a cultural statement that this is open it's available to everybody and it's clearly decentralized in, in every at every level uh, which builds up the trust which gives it probably the only chance of succeeding uh, we'll see what the take-up is but i think uh, the take-up of a centralized Run by the government in the US with the data in the center would be due to the start, as Connor mentioned. So I think this had to be uh, something that went through the public kind of foundation uh, to, to work. Yeah, and just, just to, to kind of to, fo to follow on from Jerry there, I think specifically on, on Linux Foundation Public Health, there is within the tech community in particular, you know, a, a very strong positive feeling towards Linux Foundation and everything the Linux Foundation does. And if you look at the profile of people involved in Linux Foundation Public Health, these are all, you know, there, there's technologists, there's there's medical experts, there's epidemiologists. It's it's expertise, like there's this enormous amount of expertise and from people who have fundamentally been about doing good, if I can if I might sound trite, but like a lot of people who have spent their lives you know, trying to help in various uh, public way, you know, public health uh, ways. So doing the open sourcing via them rather than as, a, you know, as they are throwing it up in GitHub and saying it's open source and um, it adds gravitas um, to everything that's been done. And, you know, there's there's a lot of thought. And as I said, expertise has gone into to what's been developed. So earlier we touched upon the complexity behind um, COVID Green uh, when we talked about um, people being able to utilize um, through open source. But how pivotal has cloud computing and React Native been for the rapid development and scalability of the uh, application? Sure. Um, very, it, it has been vital and key to it. Um, to give some concrete examples, I feel. Uh, it's it's actually fun to do projections on this. So, in as we said in, in in April, we had started to develop one app which would have a population coverage of about five million. Um, we reckon uh, that we would at least be covering fifty three million people, uh, if not sixty million people, pretty soon. And we have more in the pipeline, and it's growing, which is what the cloud was built for. It is to get away from as Thomas mentioned, the physical servers and those restrictions. Um, there's an unusually high level of activity even on the app. So we're around 1.7 million uh, people in, in Ireland on the, the initial app, um, but they're generating about 10 million transactions a day against the cloud. Um, we could easily uh, compute about 1.8 billion transactions per month by the time we get these seven or eight apps live, um, or probably 50 to 60 million. Um, that would be beyond the level of possibility. And that's where the cloud extensibility really comes into its own. So you're, you're, you're using the fact that it can scale in real time with large population uptake. So the larger US states, which are on the way, some of which are to be announced, are going to put massive, I, I was going to say massive strain, they're going to put a massive request on the cloud, but the cloud will answer uh, over physical or, or 
climate change at the moment with global failed. The React Native has been really interesting because it's not the same app. So we're, we're running, uh, concurrently developing about seven and have about five live, so different states, different countries. Um, it's not the same app. The core Bluetooth technology is the same, but we have a spectrum of people looking for basic tracing and nothing else. Governments that have released three apps, governments that are looking for a symptom check-in, uh, news updates. So there's a huge range. Uh, React Native has been really important to give us the multi-platform delivery against a single code base. It's been really important because doing the extra work to break your uh, functions into components has allowed us to reuse those components across different apps as we need. So uh, everything we've done in scaling up this app into almost a factory, uh, all of the stats have been going up skywards in a hockey stick formation. So the number of transactions, the population coverage, the number of countries, it's all scaling rapidly. The only thing that's going down is the development time. So because we've used uh, our accelerators to build it, because we're using React Native and components, we're now delivering apps uh, in days rather than weeks or months. Um, so that, that has proven itself as a better way to develop. So it's an open source based platform uh, to deliver the services while they set it And finally, can you talk a little bit about Neoform's involvement with Finos and what the future looks like? Yeah, I, I, it, it's been very, very interesting for us. I mean, I first encountered you guys in, in 20, I say early 2019. And I, what really blew me away was actually OSSF in New York, uh, last, was that last November, last December? Um, uh, Denise was there. I was there. And uh, it was the, the, the profile of people and the things they were talking about were just, were, were compelling to me because all of the, you know, it was all of the problems we'd encountered in so many other, is that, Ice cream fan. <laughs> Let's leave that in. <laughs> of course, it was it was lawnmowers earlier now as ice cream, but I'll keep going. Um, but all of the challenges that we have encountered, our customers have encountered over the years, um, and the types of approaches we were taking to solving them. I was sitting listening to people in financial services talking about the same thing, and I was. To, to, to some degree surprised that it was very aligned, um, but also how far ahead um, a lot of people in financial services were, because there, you know, there, there's somewhat of a, of a perception out there that whilst, let's say, you know, high volume trading and so on is using bleeding edge technology, that a lot of um, banks and so on, particularly retail banks, are um you know using older stacks and i didn't see that at all and there just felt like this sort of alignment of what Neoform does with the types of things these companies are trying to do and right in the middle was inner source and denise and and everything that she stood for in terms of enabling these companies to change how they do things um and it was that that was the the moment you know i i said i said it to her as as we left you know that was the one we have to get get involved in this this just feels like such such a strong match and you know she's been doing amazing things around that over the past year and and really driving that message forward um and 
you know, we and straight up, we 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 had kind of started. We were working with uh, all the accelerators we've mentioned. Um, we had the open banking um, pieces that Jaron and the other guys were working on, and really, um, you know, I think there's just absolutely straight up a pause from our perspective because of COVID. Like everybody else, you know, an awful lot of the plans we would have had from April to now. Um, slowed down and we uh, from on one side and then on the other side we had to do all this COVID work but what we're actually seeing now you know having these conversations with you and and everyone else is we're over here doing this this COVID work but it's still relevant to to, to Finos and isn't, I think that's what's what's um so interesting about all of these base technologies and and what Jer was talking about with the with the stacks and and React Native and the accelerators is it's still relevant. It's yes, it's been applied to a very specific use case at a very specific moment in time, but we're, we're, we've learned so much in the past 20 weeks and um, that can also be applied to, you know, uh, the Finos membership. And we hope the work we're doing around all of these open pieces can um, benefit them in some way. So that's really what we're looking forward to uh, in the future. That's amazing. Thank you very much um, to Conor O'Neill, Chief Product Officer at Nearform, and Jer O'Shaughnessy, Head of Propositions, um, or somebody who doesn't like to um, have a title but likes to have a purpose. Um, you've been listening to the Finos um, podcast. Um, remember, uh, if you go to finos.org, you can get involved and also register for news and updates. You can also register on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, for various different updates that we send out through social media. And if you are a developer or an engineer, feel free to visit github.com forward slash Finos to start contributing to Finos projects or to get involved in different ways. Um, and with that, I'd like to say thank you to Connor and also thank you to Jer. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Dad.